the Triathlon Show 252. everybody and welcome back to another episode of that triathlon show the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com i'm your host michael and on today's episode i interview dr bob murray bob recently or i guess one or two years ago published a review article on glycogen metabolism and resynthesis in the journal nutrition reviews and uh, this uh, review article is one that i came across a few weeks ago as I was researching glycogen resynthesis in particular, which is a topic that I've been interested in in particular over the last couple of months or so and trying to learn more about. And uh, I contacted Bob because of his really, really great, well-written review, which is also very new and up-to-date with all the latest science. Uh, So uh, we have him on the podcast to talk about this topic and it will be exciting to hear what he has to say about it because it's uh, a very important topic that I feel is not uh, not appreciated for as important as it actually is. But before we get into the interview, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Precision Hydration have an online sweat test that will give you a ballpark estimate for how much uh, sodium you lose in your sweat. And what's really interesting about this sweat test is that uh, it has been validated against testing done with actual medical grade equipment that is used in the lab test version of Precision Hydration's sweat test. They call it the advanced sweat test. So you actually need to see a service provider there to to get that exact uh, sodium concentration in your sweat but uh, with the online sweat test it has been validated as i said against this medical grade equipment testing so it will give you a great starting point for roughly how much sodium you lose in your sweat and then you can tweak your hydration plan accordingly start working from the starting point and uh, if you notice that well maybe in really hot climates you might need a little bit more or vice versa then you can tweak it accordingly so so really the online sweat test will say be like a shortcut to save you a lot of time and and also save you from potentially doing one of those advanced sweat tests because it will usually get you close enough to to where you should be you can get 15 percent off your electrolyte products with the promo code that triathlon show one five and thank you to Roka that you can find on roca.com. Roka are the world leaders in wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear, and prescription glasses and sunglasses. And they are used by some of the greatest of the greatest triathletes in the world. You have athletes like Katie Safiris, Lucy Charles Barclay, Mario Mola, Javier Gomez, and many, many others using their wetsuits and trisuits and so on. So uh, definitely top-class products that uh, are used by world champions uh, ironman champions and so on so uh, check them out and you can get 20 percent off your order with discount code that you can get on roca.com forward slash tts now without any further ado let's get into the interview with dr bob murray welcome to that triathlon show bob how are you doing today I'm doing just great. It's a beautiful uh, day here in the Chicago, Illinois area. So I'm looking forward to getting outside uh, later today and doing doing some weeding in the yard. Oh, that sounds fun. That sounds Very fun. exciting. Yeah. Uh, so uh, tell us a little bit more about who you are and uh, your your background in uh, in research. 
Well, I'm an exercise physiologist by training. I got my PhD in exercise physiology from Ohio State. And uh, as most exercise physiologists of my vintage, I assumed that I would start and end my career as a university professor and researcher. And that's definitely the way I started it. And so for the first eight years of my professional life, I was a university professor. But then in, in 1985, I had the unique opportunity to leave academia and to join the Gatorade company um, and uh, to begin an in-house exercise physiology research effort, the Gatorade Exercise Physiology Laboratory. And after a year or so, uh, the, our lab kind of quickly morphed into what's has been known and is continued to be known as the Gatorade Sports Science Institute because we, we realized we needed to couple the research effort that we had started both internally as well as in cooperation with university researchers around the world with an educational effort because back in the uh, mid to late 80s, of course, prior to the internet and the ease of which uh, information can be communicated nowadays, uh, the only way to do that was direct mail. And so we um, published a whole variety of articles on sports science and sports nutrition, most of them having nothing to do with uh, Gatorade-related topics of fluid replacement and hydration. Um, and it uh, continues nowadays online through the GSSI website as an educational resource for sports health professionals. So I remained as the director of the Gatorade Sports Science Institute from 1985 until 2008. And for the last 12 years, I've been working as a consultant with companies large and small who have interests in exercise science and sports nutrition. So that's been a, a lot of fun. I've uh, learned a lot of things that I never thought I'd learn through clients that I never thought I'd have. So it's keep kept me engaged and learning and uh without all the travel and the um, life, uh, the demands of a corporate lifestyle. So um, it's, it's been a good way to um, put the finishing touches on my professional career. Yeah, that's, uh, that sounds very interesting. And uh, yeah, I had no idea how that you spent any time and uh, that long a time in particular with, uh, with Gatorade. Uh, that's, uh, that's super interesting to hear. Uh, you've still had time in recent years to, uh, to write some articles, and uh, that's how I found you initially. I was reading an, an article uh, published in Nutrition Reviews uh, a year or two ago, which is Fundamentals of Glycogen Metabolism for Coaches and Athletes, that you wrote together with uh, Christine Rosenblum, and that, that triggered this topic to talk about glycogen, uh, glycogen metabolism and uh, glycogen uh, replenishment. So uh, it's a complex topic. Uh, so it might be helpful to start with just summarizing some key practical takeaways around glycogen metabolism in general and uh, recent physics as well, which I think is one of the the key things uh, that you uh, that you basically uh, break down into into bite sized pieces in the paper. And what what is it we need to know about that? So so can you start from that and with with the key takeaways? Sure. The the most obvious takeaway is that the level of glycogen in our muscles and also in the amount of glycogen that can be stored in the liver to help sustain our blood glucose concentrations, our blood sugar levels, are extremely important in determining our capacity for hard training and particularly endurance competition. Uh, 
Now, that's not to um, ignore high-intensity training and high-intensity type stop-and-go uh, competitions, as well as strength training, because all of those uh, make demands on our muscle glycogen and lower muscle glycogen levels. So whenever we want to get the most out of our bodies during training and competition, it uh, makes all sorts of intuitive as well as physiological sense to have a high muscle glycogen uh, level, uh, both in muscles as well as liver. Uh, we know that the glycogen content rises and falls with uh, the amount of and intensity of exercise that we do, as well as the carbohydrate content of our diet. We know that the glycogen content is a major determinant of a particularly endurance capacity. We know that the carbohydrate content of the diet is the primary determinant of the rate at which we replenish glycogen after training or competition and the extent of that restoration. Uh, we know that resynthesis of glycogen occurs most quickly in the hours after exercise, but that the muscle cells are sensitized to loading up glycogen that's been used in the 24 to 48 hours after exercise. So we have a fairly wide window of opportunity to replenish muscle glycogen. We know that when we drop muscle glycogen to relatively low levels after hours of training or competition, uh, it's going to take at least 24 to 48 hours and sometimes longer um, to fully restore that glycogen content back to uh, its normal level. And I guess finally, we know that uh, we can supercompensate those levels. We can drive them up to higher than normal levels with a combination of reduced training for two to three days and a high carbohydrate diet. That's uh, that's great. That's a, a really nice uh, summary list of, of bullet points to take away. And uh, if if I just add sort of my two cents to this from uh, from what I've come to understand from reading your paper and some others is, or what's changed for me essentially is uh, just the importance that I would attach to the first, let's say, say three or four hours after exercise on the day when I'm going to be doing two or maybe even three workouts, especially if the even the second and third one require intensity, but also just the general high volume training that a lot of triathletes, which is the majority of our audience do. Like if you are training, generally speaking, twice per day and, and uh, every other day you have some intensity, uh, most likely, Mm -hmm. then it's it gets difficult to to maintain a high glycogen uh, level in your muscles unless you are quite particular about uh, about how you actually replenish glycogen after exercise so so what i started doing is to pay more attention to how frequently i take in carbohydrate uh, after exercise so rather than having a post-workout snack and then a maybe a meal uh, a full meal between that session and the next session and maybe another snack i try to have more small snacks uh, more frequently than I used to and also pay even more attention to I've actually I think that I've not had enough carbohydrate in the past and I've tried to pay more attention to that because as we'll get into later it's recommended to get in 1.2 grams per kilogram body weight per hour of carbohydrate to maximize the resynthesis rate of glycogen so uh, that's quite a lot when when you start to to do the math about that so yeah I guess in, in increased frequency and increased uh, amounts of carbohydrate would be my two takeaways from the resynthesis side of things. And then, as you mentioned, uh, it's critically important when we're talking about competition and high-intensity training as well when you want to perform in your workouts. So that would be a third sort of 
pillar in in terms of the, the summary that that I would say. Well, you're absolutely right, and you've I guess uh, in a sense stumbled upon the right formula for replenishing muscle glycogen during two a day uh, practices. Um, simply because the rate of restoration is a lot slower than the rate at which we can break down muscle glycogen. Uh, the best way to, to get those stores uh, back up uh, above a critical threshold to allow for a, a high quality uh, second training bout in a day is to do just what you described, which is to eat relatively frequently, you know, every 30 minutes, for example, um, a, a good source of carbohydrate to help make sure that our blood glucose remains high and that all the metabolic uh, pathways for muscle glycogen resynthesis uh, are geared up to accept that glucose into the muscle cell and store it as glycogen. So uh, that's particularly critical on two-a-day uh, workouts to make sure that we have enough muscle glycogen for that second workout to, to fuel us uh, and help maintain the intensity that we're looking for. Yeah. So now let's uh, maybe talk a little bit about how we are actually using glycogen and how we're breaking it down during exercise. So can you give us a sort of the the introductory course to to how that happens uh, when yeah how, when and how are we breaking down glycogen during exercise? Anytime that we're physically active, uh, muscle glycogen will be one of the fuel sources that our muscles use to produce the ATP molecules that drive muscle contraction. And as a result, we have to um, have large muscle glycogen stores to begin with, particularly if we want to engage in prolonged training and competition you know, that goes an hour, uh, two hours, or even more uh, to sustain us at the intensity that uh, we need to provide the training adaptations that we're looking for to improve performance. So it's our in-house fuel store that uh, muscles rely upon as a primary source, particularly whenever we have an exercise intensity that's over 65% of VO2 max, which is the vast majority of exercise intensity uh, for training of, for serious athletes, then muscle glycogen is our primary fuel source. And maintaining a high muscle glycogen level then maintains our ability to, to um, train hard and Eating enough carbohydrate afterwards gives us the opportunity to, to recover quickly for subsequent training bouts or competitions. Uh, the breakdown of muscle glycogen occurs as a result of muscle contraction, number one, and all the metabolites that are produced as kind of a byproduct of that metabolism that will upregulate or speed up the breakdown of muscle glycogen. Um, hormones in the bloodstream like epinephrine, uh, adrenaline, will also increase the rate at which muscle glycogen is broken down. So there are all sorts of factors that occur whenever we're engaged in vigorous exercise that increase the breakdown and use of glycogen as a fuel source for muscle. At the same time, the glycogen that's in liver is being broken down so that it helps support the amount of uh, sugar in the bloodstream that's required to maintain a normal blood glucose and uh, make sure that muscles and brain and other tissue have a source of that important fuel. Uh, of course, we can supplement that by consuming carbohydrate during training. And in most cases, that's a very important step to take that helps spare liver glycogen 
and supplement the glucose supply from the bloodstream into muscle, which can then help supplement the muscle glycogen that's being broken down. And you already talked a little bit about how how important muscle glycogen is for performance, uh, but uh, can you just uh, clarify why it is so important uh, for performance when we're looking for whether it's competition or uh, training doesn't matter but but why why is it critical well carbohydrate is king when it comes to performance uh, because muscles are uh, reliant upon carbohydrate uh, with increased exercise intensity so as i mentioned before whenever we get above 65 percent vo2 max uh, Carbohydrate in the form of muscle glycogen and blood glucose is the predominant fuel for exercising muscles. And the reason for that is that carbohydrate can be broken down a lot faster than fatty acids can be broken down and less oxygen is required uh, for that process uh, when you compare glucose to a fatty acid. So carbohydrate is a high efficiency fuel. It's a fuel that muscles can use very quickly. It's a fuel, obviously, that is stored within uh, each muscle cell, so it's readily available to the uh, metabolic machinery of muscles and the contractile elements of muscles, and it's an ideal fuel for that reason uh, for muscles to rely upon for high-intensity training and performance. Yeah, yeah, and that point about it requiring less oxygen to break down compared to fat is a key point that a lot of people miss and are not aware of. So, like we hear quite often, people mistakenly say that fat is a more efficient fuel, and I guess what they mean is that fat is a more abundant fuel because we have essentially unlimited stores of that, so so we can use it for a long time. But uh, but really, if we are looking for performance, and it doesn't matter if it's a even if it's a longer race when we are working at some sort of uh, higher percentage of VO2 max, we're really going to go slower if we need to rely more on fat than on carbohydrate, just because that more of that uh, it takes more of that oxygen that we that that we're capable of using to produce the same amount of ATP compared to if we're using carbohydrate for fuel. So really, you want to be using that carbohydrate to produce more uh, forward generating uh, energy in uh, whatever your sport is but uh, then again you need to make sure that you have the stores to do so and in competition uh, refill during the competition as well yeah that's a great observation and one thing that i find a lot of uh, non-scientists get a little bit confused about is the way in which our energy pathways interact to produce the atp that our muscles need uh, at any time even when we're sitting on the couch so you know we We can produce ATP through carbohydrate metabolism from glycogen and blood glucose, and that can occur uh, aerobically where we have complete breakdown of the glucose to to form ATP and carbon dioxide and water and heat. Uh, We can do the same thing with uh, fatty acids um, for complete aerobic breakdown. Uh, With carbohydrate, we have the glycolytic pathway, the anaerobic pathway that ends up in the production of of lactate, of lactic acid, and we have the phosphocreatine system that uh, we recognize as being important during explosive, short, high-intensity uh, activities. But all of those are active at all times. Uh, at rest, as we are now, you know, we're burning very little muscle glycogen. We're using some blood glucose, but primarily our ATP needs are being met by the oxidation, the breakdown of fatty acids. Um, 
There's a little phosphocreatine that's, that's used at the same time. Uh, when we get up and start walking away from uh, our chair, uh, then all those metabolic pathways are still active, but the proportions of which they contribute to ATP production varies. And the higher the exercise intensity, uh, the shift in the pathway mix uh, changes in favor of relying upon muscle glycogen as the primary fuel source. But at the same time, the oxidation of fats are important. Uh, the production of lactic acid is important uh, through the anaerobic uh, uh, glycolysis. And we continue to use fossil creatinine as a fuel source as that can be constantly replenished. So it's a real mixture of metabolic pathways, of energy pathways to produce the ATP that's needed. And the proportion of those pathways simply shifts based upon the intensity and duration of our activity. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, so we're, we're in no way saying that fat oxidation isn't critically important. And, and really, in again, for a triathlon audience, it's particularly important because of just the shared duration of most of our races. They're, they're long. But uh, yeah, what we're saying is that uh, that carbohydrate is also critically important. And even when we're talking training, if you can train better, train more, train with higher quality, you're going to improve your general endurance capacity, which and those into those adaptations, you can count uh, better fat oxidation, better ability to to aerobically oxidize fats for fuel, and uh, so it's really going to uh, to be beneficial for you to to have enough carbs on board during training from the fat oxidation perspective as well. Just you're becoming a better athlete, and uh, and that includes those critical aerobic adaptations and uh, the fat oxidation uh, adaptations. Yeah, that, that's an important point. Uh, because as we become more aerobically fit, we reduce our reliance on muscle glycogen. And the reason we do that is that we increase our ability to break down fatty acids to, to serve as fuel to meet our needs. And that's a good thing. Uh, and all the metabolites that normally spark the breakdown of muscle glycogen are produced in lesser quantities as we become more fit. And so that in and of itself reduces the use of muscle glycogen. So we have a greater reliance upon fatty acids, a little less reliance upon muscle glycogen. So we prolong our ability to uh, rely on those muscle glycogen stores as exercise progresses in duration or in intensity. Yeah. Uh, a question on training adaptations. Are there any particular training adaptations that are related to uh, to muscle glycogen? Like, for example, are there some adaptations that might decrease if we if we work out with low muscle glycogen stores i guess what we already talked about if you perform less than you generally have less powerful adaptations i guess but is there any specifics here in terms of training adaptations that uh, that you know that uh, we should talk about yeah it definitely are and this is kind of a new area new meaning within the last 10 years of exercise science that has a lot of people who do research on muscle glycogen very exciting uh, because it's become apparent that muscle glycogen is not only a source of fuel that's stored within muscle and liver, uh, but it's also uh, our glycogen stores, weirdly enough, serve as a sensor for the fuel status of the muscle cell. They serve as kind of a regulator of all the signaling pathways that occur intracellularly um, as a result of exercise that hopefully down the line, result in the adaptations that are required to improve our performance. And 
uh, the muscle glycogen stores likely contribute to the regulation and the hydration status of our cells to help maintain cell volume through osmotic means of either breaking down or storing muscle glycogen to help the cell uh, maintain its hydration status. So it's become apparent that muscle glycogen is just not an inert fuel source that can be relied upon for energy production, but it plays a number of other roles. And the role that it plays in as a signaling pathway uh, for adaptations is the one that's most exciting because it gives us an opportunity to periodize the nutrition approaches um, to help uh, um, make muscle glycogen an important part of the training and adaptation process because it's apparent that low muscle glycogen stores are is an important signal to the muscle cell that it to help upregulate not only the capacity to store muscle glycogen when more carbohydrate becomes available, but also to produce a lot of other intracellular adaptations that could lead to improved performance, particularly in terms of the enzymes responsible for energy production as well as glycogen storage. So it's a new and exciting and area of research, but it has a lot of important practical implications for uh, serious and elite athletes who really want to uh, fine-tune their performance yeah and this is something that just a few weeks ago we had professor john hawley on the podcast and talked uh, a lot about this you know, talked about uh, train low strategies and uh, the interested listener can go back and listen to that interview to uh, to get more details on on that particular uh, field of research but as you say it's fascinating and it will be really exciting to see where it goes in the in the next few years uh, now if we talk a little bit about uh, glycogen and where and how it's stored, uh, yeah, what what what's going on there? Is it all in the muscle? Is it all in like one place, or are there different storage uh, units within the muscle cell? And what are the factors that influence how it's stored? Well, that, that's a good question. But before I get to that answer, let me say that um, John Hawley was be, was 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 the perfect guest for that topic because no one knows that area better than John does. So I encourage your listeners, if they haven't heard John's podcast, to go back and listen to it because he's an absolute wealth of knowledge and he's still an active researcher uh, who has his uh, finger on the pulse of, of all of these things. So um, he, he was a great choice as a guest. Now to the question about where glycogen is stored, uh, that's another interesting area that's kind of evolving here over the past 10 years because it's become apparent that uh, glycogen is stored kind of strategically uh, in three different spots in our muscle cells. And, you know, if you were given the task of designing a muscle cell and deciding where to store muscle glycogen, uh, I think we'd probably come up with a similar um, uh, array of muscle glycogen storage sites. So, uh, you know, we think of the muscle cell as a very crowded place. It's, you know, skeletal muscles are cylindrical and, and oftentimes very long, and they're crammed with the contractile filaments, the actin and myosin and uh, all the protein aspects that cause that uh, cross bridge functioning that results in muscle contraction. And, you know, of course, during endurance activity, the muscle cells are continuously contracting as a result of neural input. 
And consequently, their requirements for ATP are very, very high. Um, so we have at any given time, all sorts of glucose molecules crossing from the blood into the muscle cell. We have fatty acids uh, also crossing from the blood into the muscle cell. We have fats that are stored within muscle that can be broken down to provide uh, fatty acid uh, to the muscle uh, metabolic machinery for ATP production. And of course, we have muscle glycogen. And it turns out that muscle glycogen is stored in three, in a sense, separate sites within the muscle. Uh, one of those sites is just below the muscle cell membrane, subsarcolemal uh, muscle glycogen. And, you know, muscle uh, cell membranes, in particular muscle cell membranes, are extraordinarily active from a metabolic standpoint because they're shuttling uh, molecules, whether it's minerals or nutrients or metabolites, uh, as well as oxygen and carbon dioxide back and forth across that cell membrane. So having a fuel supply close to the active cell membrane makes all sorts of sense so that the cell membrane is well supplied with the ATP it requires. We also know that uh, muscle uh, glycogen can be stored in between the actual uh, contractile elements so that it's absolutely handy for um, where it's needed uh, to be used by the sarcoplasmic reticulum that's responsible for the shuttling of calcium uh, back and forth, which is which really drives muscle contraction, as well as the mitochondria that is uh, that are found throughout muscle cells because they're a big user of uh, the glucose that's produced from muscle glycogen in, in their aerobic production of ATP molecules. And then we have muscle glycogen that is found um, so between the uh, myofibril uh, packages, um, you know, our, our muscle cells are divided into discrete uh, packages of contractile elements, and these myofibrils um, form individual units, in a sense, that uh, need muscle glycogen, of course. So, in a sense, the easiest way to remember this is that glycogen is spread uh, throughout the muscles cells where it can be readily accessed and used by all the metabolic machinery that's crammed into a muscle cell to support not only muscle contraction, but all of the other uh, metabolic activities that, that are required to sustain the muscle contraction as well as the very life of the muscle cell. And I'm forgetting the detail slightly, but I believe in your paper you also talked about uh, how this muscle glycogen from different storage sites is preferentially used during exercise and and then also how it's even maybe uh, resynthesized at different rates. And were there any sort of uh, interesting uh, points about that that we should mention as well? Uh, I know I only have a vague recollection that there was something going on there. So uh, I'll let you fill in the details. Well, the, uh, the long and the short of it is that the... Muscle glycogen that's stored kind of between the muscle fibers, the intramyofibrillar uh, muscle glycogen, uh, is the one that appears to be used preferentially or at least uh, drops the most uh, during exercise. And uh, consequently, it's resynthesized at the fastest rate, thank goodness, um, because obviously that's the most important store and the one that contracting muscles rely upon. 
you know, I, I'm not sure what the practical implications of that are. It's kind of interesting from a scientific standpoint. Um, and it kind of complicates the uh, use of muscle biopsy and other technique to try to assess overall muscle glycogen because those techniques um, until recently haven't differentiated among the different um, supply areas within the muscle as to what's happening with each of those different uh, three sites of muscle glycogen storage. Uh, but nonetheless, the practical recommendations for athletes are unchanged by that knowledge. So I guess that's a good thing. And we can talk about the stores of uh, muscle glycogen within muscle cells at a point of scientific curiosity, but for the time being, um, uh, unaltered practical recommendations. Okay. Well, yeah, that's good. One, one less thing that we need to keep in mind. So, so how much can we store uh, in, uh, in our muscle cells? Well, how do we measure muscle glycogen and, and what, what's kind of the size of that store storage when, when they're full, fully, fully, fully repleted? All right. Well, let's, uh, let's start with an untrained person. We'll start at the bottom in a sense. Uh, untrained muscle stores about 80 units of, uh, muscle glycogen on average. Um, and again, as we talk about in a biological sense, any averages have a wide range. So I'm just using the number 80 as a, um, just a starting point. And the units that we're talking about are millimoles of glycogen per kilogram of uh, uh, muscle in a, in a wet weight versus a dry weight fashion. So the units aren't important because they're important, obviously, to scientists who work in this area. But for this discussion, let's just stick with the number 80 as the glycogen content of an untrained muscle. The next yep. step then is to look at the glycogen content of an endurance trained muscle. And in general, that average is about 120 units. So 80 in untrained, 120 in uh, endurance trained muscle. Uh, that That's a sizable increase. And of course, it allows for uh, greater intensity and duration of training and competition. And then at the far ex high extreme, let's consider a muscle or muscles that have been supercompensated with muscle glycogen. In those cases, we could store perhaps 200 units of glycogen. So over you know, about two and a half times the amount of an untrained muscle. And to supercompensate uh, a muscle, it simply requires two to three days of light training and uh, continuation of a high carbohydrate diet. And, and that will do the job. And of course, that's pretty consistent with the current and past practical rec recommendations for uh, endurance athletes prior to important competitions where they want to perform at their best. And one of the ways to do that, obviously, is to have the highest level of muscle glycogen possible. Yeah. Uh, do you have any numbers? You had 120 units uh, for the endurance trained athlete. What about real world class endurance athletes, the best of the best? Do you, do you have any, any sort of ballpark for where they might be? Well, generally, you'd expect them to be between 120 and 200. Um, you know, uh, it's provided, and this is a big proviso, provided they have a diet that is adequate in carbohydrate. And the kind of the disturbing news is that there are a number of studies done on elite and professional uh, world-class athletes that show very clearly that many of them 
simply fail to consume enough carbohydrate during the day. In fact, they may only get to half of the current recommendations. Um, and so that's, that's a real problem for them for training and competition, particularly if you're talking about uh, anybody who's competing on a, on a day-to-day or uh, basis or uh, multiple times a week. Uh, they're putting themselves in a very compromised uh, situation where their performance is likely to suffer as those muscle glycogen stores drop lower and lower day after day, and that they're increasing their risk of uh, injury and illness along the way. So it, it, it's a real problem with a very easy solution in that uh, it's, you know, once we educate and train athletes to know what to look for in terms of dietary carbohydrates, most, most athletes are pretty able to increase their carbohydrate content and get above that critical threshold uh, of muscle glycogen that uh, we know impairs performance. Yeah, and just speculating here a little bit, uh, I wonder if some athletes might just be so used to their their current level of muscle glycogen, which is far from the like the the completely replenished amount that they could store in their muscle cells, that they just take their workout performances as well. Oh, this this is my level, but if they actually increase their carbohydrate consumption, increase their muscle glycogen content, then they could suddenly make a make a leap in performance ability and uh, see further adaptations for that. And they might not even be aware because they might not have critical issues like uh, like illnesses or like really poor performance, but they might just be leaving a little bit out on the table and not even know it. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Uh, I know that's another good observation. Uh, you know, whenever uh, we're busy and we lead stressful lives, it's – you know, we, we usually default to what's comfortable and usual for us. And, and that's certainly true in terms of diet. Um, when athletes, uh, many of whom lead very hectic, demanding lives, or they're trying to balance work and training and, and family life, um, you know, it, consuming enough carbohydrate in the diet is maybe one of the least of their concerns. And so uh, we, we simply default to what we're accustomed to. Uh, but perhaps as you found out uh, through your the increase in carbohydrate content of your diet, it's a difference you can feel uh, when you consume enough carbohydrate because you just feel better, you recover more quickly. Uh, those second of the two-a-day workouts are, can be done at a higher quality, uh, and, and it, it's, it, it's very noticeable. It is, yeah. And, and especially, I think, over a long, longer time period, looking at a period of three or four weeks, uh, with like really focusing on it compared to not focusing on it, uh, the amount of uh, of quality work you can do, you can even like with all the data we collect these days, you can just look at the something like the calories burned through exercise, which would be directly uh, reflected from the the power on your bike power meter or mm-hmm. your run power meter for that matter, and uh, and you can see that over a four week period, like you manage to to just expend a lot more calories and produce a lot more power and uh, well obviously because you fueled for that which you didn't do before but it might not be something that you necessarily noticed in any single workout but uh, but it's just that no workout really was a failure the way it might have been before or every single workout which has a target range you managed to stay a little bit more towards the upper end of that target range rather than the lower end so so i think it's there are often subtle subtle differences but over a long longer period of time they can make a big difference yeah that's that's a great metric for athletes to keep an eye on uh and as you said you, you need to do it over kind of a month or more period of time so you could 
those trends become uh, more noticeable. You know, and consuming enough carbohydrate in the diet is in one sense an easy thing to do, uh, but in the other sense, it can it can be a real challenge because keep in mind that the current recommendations for daily carbohydrate intake for endurance athletes is to consume uh, 7 to 10 grams of carbohydrate per kilogram of body weight per day. So if you have a 70 kilogram athlete, uh, 10 grams per kilogram means 700 ca- uh, grams of carbohydrate. That's 2,800 calories just in car- carbohydrate alone. And while a lot of uh, athletes who are trading it twice a day or sometimes even once a day can expend enormous amounts of energy, uh, it's still a lot of carbohydrate to get in. So that's why uh, educating athletes about the importance of carbohydrate and how to choose foods that can provide uh, enough carbohydrate to to get them to uh, restore their muscle glycogen on a day-to-day basis is uh, an important thing to do. Yeah, and it can be, as you say, a little bit of a puzzle as well to uh, if if you just eat to fulfill that in this example 2,800 calories of carbohydrate requirement without thinking of your other other macronutrients. It, it could easily lead you into actually being in a positive energy balance or taking in way more than you put out. So you might actually need to think a little bit about the types of foods you eat in terms of not getting too much fat and to some extent also protein, although of course both of those are critical and you need you need some amount of them. But uh, it requires a little bit of thinking, I guess, but once you do it once, then you're kind of set and you know what you need to do. So So it's an exercise worth doing, I would say. Yeah, and that's why working with uh, qualified sports dietitians, sports nutritionists is extraordinarily valuable, uh, simply because those are individuals who are experts in how to construct a diet to provide all the the carbohydrate, the fats, the proteins, and the micronutrient needs that athletes have. Um, So I would always encourage serious athletes who are concerned about their diet to find someone who is – specializes in that area to help guide them yeah absolutely Uh, let's uh, go back a little bit to the glycogen content in the cells and now talk about how uh, it gets depleted during exercise so if you take our endurance trained athlete with a glycogen content of 120 units uh, what happens when we exercise how much can we expect to lose for different types of workouts and uh, where is that threshold where it becomes noticeable and we see a decrease in performance uh, good question. Uh, and the answer is that uh, the rate at which we lose muscle glycogen, the rate at which it's broken down, depends uh, on the intensity and, and the duration of exercise. So there have been research studies that show massive drops in muscle glycogen uh, following uh, nine or 10 minutes of extremely high intensity activity. Let's say, you know, doing cycling at 150% of VO2 max workloads uh, repeatedly will cause muscle glycogen to plummet because that high intensity act, during that such high intensity activities, the muscle cells are almost 100% rely upon muscle glycogen as a fuel source simply because fatty acids just can't keep up in terms of being broken down fast enough. So extraordinarily high intensity short duration activity can cause muscle glycogen to go from uh, high and, and normal levels down to uh, very low levels at which performance is obviously impaired. Uh, for endurance athletes, again, uh, continuous exercise over an hour or more uh, will cause muscle glycogen to gradually uh, be reduced over time, kind of in a just, just 
if you can picture a line graph, just in a kind of gradual decrease, a little bit faster at the start than toward the end as muscle glycogen stores get low and the muscle tries to shift to other fuel sources. Uh, but again, we can go from uh, normal and high levels down to very low, critically low levels um, after a couple hours of exercise. And, you know, and marathon runners obviously are, as well as any endurance athlete knows what it feels like to hit the wall during training and competition. And that wall is in large part due to reaching a, a low muscle glycogen level that's inadequate to provide uh, muscle glycogen and therefore the ATP that the muscles require to sustain the exercise intensity that, that is desired. Um, so muscle glycogen falls from the moment we start exercise until the moment we stop. And the rate of that decline depends upon the intensity of and the duration of what we're doing. When you talk about critically low, yeah, are, are there any estimates or ballpark numbers for where that is? Is that 50% of the starting point of, let's say, 120? Or is it at uh, 20%? Where is it? And is that the same as hitting the wall? Because just from uh, anecdotal experience, I would say that hitting the wall is quite rare yes many athletes have experienced it to some extent but but really really hitting the wall is something that that fortunately is is quite rare but on the other hand uh, hitting a point of clearly decreased performance which can be attributed if you think about it and talk with the athlete uh, from a coaching perspective uh, is uh, very common on the other hand so so i would say that that's maybe there's an earlier threshold if you will where you can see you can clearly get a decrease in performance that is before you hit the wall uh, with that yeah. you know, what, what would your thoughts be around that well uh first of all let let me let me make a clarification again that i find often confuses coaches and athletes because we hear the term uh glycogen depletion and a lot of people immediately think that that means that glycogen levels have been driven down to zero uh which never occurs uh, because that would cause the death of the muscle cell uh, glycogen depletion simply refers to the reduction in muscle glycogen to levels that impair performance. And as you mentioned in your question, there are probably a couple of threshold levels that are important for us to keep in mind. Uh, one of them is at maybe 50% of the normal muscle glycogen stores. And, and that's the level at which researchers have shown enhanced adaptations to training, if we drive muscle glycogen down to that level and let it stay there for you know half a day or a day, then the metabolic signals that occur uh, as the muscle cell scrambles to try to replenish that muscle glycogen um, without the aid of additional carbohydrate from the diet is what leads to these potentially positive training adaptations that, in some cases, but not all cases, have been shown to improve performance in the laboratory setting. So that's threshold number one. Threshold number two is even lower than that, um, maybe a 75% reduction in muscle glycogen, at which case uh, the muscle uh, simply doesn't have enough glycogen on board and the muscle's uh, metabolic machinery shifts to, to emphasize the oxidation of fats and consequently our exercise intensity has to drop because we simply can't produce ATP fast enough. And that's the level at which um, we might hit the wall or at least feel 
uh, an obvious uh, fatigue as a result of muscle glycogen depletion. All right. Yeah. And uh, and then to go back to some examples with uh, the nine or 10 minutes of very high intensity exercise, you would uh, get down to that sort of 50% threshold or with a two hour continuous exercise, as you also mentioned, that would also be sufficient to drive it down to uh, more or less that 50% threshold, but not necessarily to bonking level of 25%. Yeah, there you go. That, that's exactly right. And that's a good sort of concept for us all to keep in mind. And, and, you know, getting down to that 50% level is not a bad thing. In fact, it's probably a good thing in terms of training. And uh, whether it happens by design or by accident, um, it doesn't much matter. And by accident, I mean, you know, there's a lot of athletes who, as we discussed before, don't consume enough carbohydrate to totally replenish their muscle glycogen source. So day after day of hard training, uh, muscle glycogen is driven down during training and doesn't get back to normal. Uh, as a result of the inadequate carbohydrate intake. And so the next training bout drives it even lower. And eventually we want to rectify that by taking some rest days and eating a lot of carbohydrates. So glycogen uh, kind of can skyrocket back to normal or above normal levels and prepare us for the next weaker training or competition. Um, but the, that, those ups and downs in muscle glycogen content are extraordinarily important. And oftentimes... Uh, we drive them to low levels uh, by by accident, as I mentioned, simply because athletes just inadvertently don't consume enough uh, carbohydrate in their diet. Their muscle glycogens remain at low levels, and uh, they accidentally benefit from the adaptations that can occur in those circumstances. And of course, we can do the same thing by design. Um, uh, and you know, sleep low, train low is one approach that has been used in a laboratory setting very successfully to improve, increase the adaptations to training and consequently, as the research has shown, improve endurance performance. Um, and the whole idea is that you have a afternoon or evening workout uh, that drives down muscle glycogen to low levels. You don't eat much carbohydrate after that. You sleep with low muscle glycogen levels and you get up in the morning and perhaps do a high-intensity activity, again, with low muscle glycogen levels, um, to try to augment those intracellular signals that result from having low muscle glycogen. Then you feed carbohydrate back into the system and uh, enjoy the benefits of the enhanced adaptations that occur as a result of having periodically very low muscle glycogen. Yeah, yeah. I think a key key thing here is to uh, like to to have a grasp of when you want to make sure you you start with high muscle glycogen and when you start with low muscle glycogen. And uh, as you say, it's not necessarily a bad thing that uh, glycogen levels they naturally fluctuate, and we might get some some adaptations without even knowing it from that. But then again, we might also miss out in some very key workouts because we didn't think about it in the first place so so it would be better if we can by design uh, do those uh, adaptation workers when we really train with low muscle glycogen and uh, and then make sure that we uh, replenish uh, adequately to start the really key workers where we need and want high muscle glycogen uh, so that we start with, with adequate levels for for that yeah exactly and of course the downside of that training approach is that you feel lousy during some of those workouts, you're going to be very fatigued and irritable. You're, there's no way you're going to have a quality workout. 
because of those low muscle glycogen stores. And so in a sense, we have to suffer through it um, in order to, to enjoy the, the benefits that are going to occur downstream. Um, yeah, and- I'd like to mention, though, too, that uh, I don't recommend this approach to most athletes simply because most athletes still haven't checked the boxes for what they should be doing with hydration and overall energy intake and carbohydrate intake and protein intake, and all the basics, uh, fundamentals of sports nutrition that we have to make sure that uh, uh, we're accomplishing before we take on uh, strategies like sleep low, train low. Yeah, and I'd add to that program structure, uh, training volume, intensity distribution, those sorts of things. Like before you have nailed those, uh, I also don't think that you need to get too fancy with uh, with train low, sleep low strategies. But uh, yeah, you're right. I talked about this again on the podcast with John Hawley, but I've done these workouts quite a bit. And, uh, and I think that towards the end, the, the advantage there obviously is that rather than having to train for two hours and then you get to a level where you're really at mm-hmm. that level where you can get the adaptations you start to work out immediately already at the low glycogen uh, in a state of low glycogen and you can start incurring those adaptations from the start of the workout to the end of the workout essentially but then towards the end of that workout i mean i would assume that you are close to that threshold or bon- of bonking and that's kind of what it feels like you get those sort of sensations uh, to some extent they're, they're sort of sneaking up on you slowly but surely Mm-hmm. And then the difficulty is that you need to really get your replenishment right because the next day you have another workout that you need to do or even in the afternoon. So so let's move into that replenishment because I think this is where we also need to spend some time to talk about that. How quickly can we replenish uh, the depleted glycogen stores? Well, before I respond to that, tell me a little bit more about your personal experience after the second uh, train low episode um, in terms of uh, how long it typically takes you to feel normal again? Uh, that's a good question. I, I talked a lot about my personal experience on that interview, so I won't go into the details, but the, I didn't uh, answer that particular question. So I've recently been doing that second episode on a on a Sunday morning. And uh, I, to put it this way, I've been happy that Monday has generally been a day without any high intensity, uh, definitely. Uh, but but Tuesday, I've been fine. And Monday, I've also been fine to do the workout I've been assigned, about, or the workouts I've been assigned, but they have been sort of like at, at the maximum fat oxidation rate or lower, let's call it 65% VO2 max or lower generally. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so, so, that, so I've, I do think that it takes longer than, longer than 24 hours before I feel normal, for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, that's very consistent with which with what the research would suggest, which is 24 to 48 hours to replenish muscle glycogen, particularly in cases where you've driven them as low as, as you obviously have. Um, muscle yeah. glycogen replenishment occurs in what's referred to as a biphasic manner, which is uh, uh, fast at the start and a little bit slower as muscle glycogen stores uh, get higher and higher within the muscle. Uh, the fast part occurs within the first couple hours after exercise, and hence the recommendations that we try to get carbohydrate into our system soon after training if our goal is to restore those muscle glycogen uh, de- depots quickly. And uh, again, as you mentioned before earlier in the interview, uh, about one gram or so of carbohydrate per kilogram of body weight uh, 
every 30 minutes uh, will do the trick over this first couple hours to serve as a every 60 minutes right uh, per, per per hour per hour yeah yeah but then spread um, out so you could you could get 0.5 grams per 30 minutes yes for 30 minutes yeah and uh you know that's going to be enough to take advantage of that window of rapid replenishment and uh, as i mentioned service a nutrition bridge to the next normal meal and that you know that's easy to, that's easy enough to do i mean there are so many products in terms of sports drinks and and bars and gels and various ways to consume carbohydrate that are convenient uh, to athletes and with most athletes have a good experience with and tolerate well. So in a sense, there's no excuse uh, for athletes to, to miss that opportunity. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about the type of carbohydrate that you should con- consume here. What influence does that have? Because um, I, I personally, for one, I don't really feel like having tons of gels uh, at that point i'm if i had a hard workout maybe i already had a lot of gels in in that workout so so that's the last thing i want to have uh, after mm-hmm. i'm a bit more open to having like a recovery shake with some just powder form carbohydrate uh, or i am open to that but also that's something that i would have as my immediate post-workout snack and then i would try to move more towards some more food-based carbohydrate like bananas orange juice that sort of thing can you talk a little bit about what the yeah what what influence the type of carbohydrate here has yes and uh, let me start by saying there's not a lot of difference as to whether or not we have simple versus complex carbohydrates uh, solid versus liquid forms of carbohydrates whether we're male or female uh, and whether we're young or old uh, with one proviso here in a second uh, muscle glycogen uh, uh, metabolism is pretty much the same across all of those uh, different contrasts, uh, particularly when it comes to muscle glycogen resynthesis. The proviso being that older athletes have a tendency to uh, resynthesize muscle glycogen more slowly than their younger counterparts. Uh, but in general, uh, the, the idea is to get carbohydrate into our bodies in ample amounts uh, on a relatively frequent basis, particularly during two-a-day training or competition where um, muscle glycogen resynthesis is, is extremely important. And that can occur in whatever form is uh, comfortable and enjoyable uh, to the athlete. So uh, moving from uh, a sports food uh, to whole foods is absolutely the way to go because not only do we want to get carbohydrate into the system, we want to get an ample amount of protein to help spark the increase in muscle protein synthesis and getting uh, other fibers and micronutrients and fats into the body is also good from a nutrition standpoint. So there's multiple nutrition goals, uh, but carbohydrate replenishment uh, leads the way. Yeah. And uh, speaking about protein, uh, you mentioned, of course, muscle protein synthesis is one key goal that uh, we need to focus on regardless. But also there is some research around how uh, co-ingestion of protein with carbohydrate can potentially impact the the resynthesis rate of muscle glycogen. Can you talk about what the consensus is uh, in in that realm? Well, I think the consensus remains to be seen because that research is kind of in its infancy. Consequently, there's only a handful of projects along these lines that, like research in general on new topics, some show positive results and others don't. Um, 
it appears that protein might be important um, in combination of carbohydrate when time is limited and, uh, you know, you can't consume as much carbohydrate as, uh, as would ideally be the case. You know, a, a lot of these sins in terms of uh, muscle glycogen resynthesis can be overcome simply by consuming more carbohydrate. Uh, that's the key factor. If we consume ample carbohydrate, then uh, co-ingestion with protein or caffeine or creatine doesn't seem to, to uh, improve things. Uh, but when circumstances are limited um, and we just simply can't consume enough carbohydrate, then consuming protein along with it, perhaps creatine and even evidence for caffeine, uh, shows that muscle glycogen resynthesis can be augmented under those specific circumstances. Yeah. And, and if we want to consume a little bit of protein anyway, again, for muscle protein synthesis, then I guess it's just a little nice insurance policy that if we perhaps didn't get quite as much carbohydrate as we ideally should have, let's say we got 0.8 instead of uh, one gram or 0.7 instead of one gram or 1.2 grams per kilo of body weight per hour, then maybe protein can go some way to compensate for that loss of uh, glycogen replenishment that uh, the lower level of, of glycogen we fed ourselves would, would otherwise have led to. Yeah, absolutely. And there was an interesting research article um, earlier this year that showed that the co-ingestion of protein and carbohydrate early in the recovery phase uh, improved in, in subsequent endurance performance. Um, and so uh, the point that you made, I think, is the most important one. It's uh, certainly not going to hurt. It's There's a possibility that it might help. And the um, transition from solely carbohydrate foods that we might cons- and drinks that we might consume during training and competition to more whole multinutrient foods is definitely the recommendation that should be followed. Yeah. Uh, in that second phase of uh, the glycogen replenishment, uh, what's the recommendation there? Did we did we get to that, uh, or did I, did I miss that? Because we talked about the one to one point two grams per kilo body weight per hour in the first window, uh, but then in the second phase of that biphasic uh, replenishment curve, uh, what is the recommendation there? Uh, that is a good question, and you know I don't have those figures right at my mental fingertips. Um, I'm going to uh, just browse through the paper here that I have. I'm doing the same thing. But, um, I think you're you're still more familiar with your paper than I am, so you're likely to find it before me. Um, well, you know, it's it's likely to be similar to what the daily recommendations for carbohydrate intake are, which is that seven to ten grams per kilogram of body weight per day. You know, yeah. As we get yeah. During the, basically, during the rest of the day, you just want to make sure that let's say you you achieved your four hours after your hard morning session you you each of those hours you got your one gram per kilogram per uh, uh per hour yeah and uh, then you have already achieved four four grams and uh, you maybe had something before as well but but then basically the, the goal for the rest of the day is to to simply achieve your seven to ten grams total uh, as you said and depending yeah. on what travel le- training level you are, of course, this yeah. applies to endurance athletes that train quite a lot. And if you're more recreational and don't train as much, then maybe the levels are lower. Uh, yeah. speak- speaking of which, uh, at what 
training level uh, or training volume or just general description qualitative description of of an athlete do you think that focusing on replenishment of carbohydrate and glycogen resynthesis really becomes important for example if we have an athlete that trains let's say one hour per day and uh, maybe sometimes they do a little bit of intensity sometimes they don't uh, can they just wing it kind of or do they even do they need to focus on this or even if we have an athlete that is a focused athlete so they do some serious intense workouts but they always limited by volume they generally don't train longer than one hour per day Uh, is 24 hours generally enough that you don't really need to focus so much on on these things or what's your take on that well i think in general winging it is probably a good idea because it's one less thing for athletes to have to concern themselves with uh, (laughs) to complicate their lives Um, Because under those circumstances, and again, this is all dependent upon the extent to which they drive down their muscle glycogen stores with their workouts. But in general, working out one hour a day isn't going to put a giant dent in our muscle glycogen stores. And so it's going to be relatively easy to replenish those uh, within a a 24-hour period of time. Um, And then uh, if those same individuals are eventually going to go into some – road race or triathlon competition, uh, then that's a time to reduce training for the two or three days beforehand and emphasize carbohydrate in the diet to make sure we're driving up glycogen to the highest possible level before the competition. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, One final question before we wrap up and give some uh, maybe final take-home messages is around fueling in the workout itself. So let's now talk about not any particular train low workouts, but let's say a longer bike ride where you also have some some intensity perhaps. So something that really is going to require a lot of energy in general, a lot of carbohydrate as well. And uh, you also have your, you have a fairly reasonably high volume training program and you need to perform day in, day out in, in this training period. Uh, what, what importance do you think that fueling properly during that workout has uh, it's obviously going to offset, or how is it going to offset the, the depletion of the glycogen stores? Well, there is some evidence that uh, feeding during exercise might slightly reduce the reliance on muscle glycogen in the type 2 fast twitch muscle cells. Um, but in general, it, it, you know that effect is relatively small. And the importance of consuming carbohydrate during exercise is to provide extra fuel for muscles and the ner- central nervous system, the brain. Uh, and the central nervous system, as, you, as I'm sure you know, is an obligatory user of glucose under normal circumstances. It can't use fats or proteins. Um, so consuming carbohydrate during exercise keeps us, in a sense, mentally sharp, reduces the, our sense of perceived exertion of the effort, and uh, provides energy to muscles, which we know from hundreds of research projects, uh, helps us increase our, maintain our exercise intensity and improve our performance. So uh, aside from any impact on muscle glycogen, uh, consuming carbohydrate during exercise is an extraordinarily good thing to do uh, for, for all the reasons I just mentioned. Yeah. And one thing that I see from from a coaching perspective and, and somebody uh, like talking to a lot of athletes, uh, is that some athletes are hesitant to do that because they they feel like well this is the exercise may, because maybe they have some diet goals body composition goals body weight goals uh, and uh, they feel that well this is my chance to really drive down that uh, or drive up that energy 
a deficit that's caloric deficit so they don't take in anything but uh, from my perspective that's kind of the, the the last time that you should you should be focusing on that because that's really when you want to like increase your exercise capacity that will just improve increase the amount of energy burned in total in general so you get the most bang for your buck by consuming energy when you're training compared to any other time and then perhaps as a uh, if you are really going to benefit from uh, from a caloric deficit from losing some body fat then maybe the uh, you should compensate in uh, the uh, in the in the time after exercise instead so maybe still the first first hour or two might be the most important to to get some uh, something in to make sure that you replenish but then the longer you get from the exercise that's where you start to to focus more on those other goals other than well, yeah your intuition is spot on uh, intuition informed by science um, you know this was a research topic that we paid attention to in the Gatorade Sports Science Institute days because you know it is counterintuitive for people to think well, gee, I want to lose weight, so why do I want to take calories in during a workout? doesn't seem right. And uh, there's a couple of reasons why it's, it's good, and you identified one of them, and that is consuming carbohydrate during exercise helps us maintain our exercise intensity. We burn more calories as a result uh, rather than petering out uh, toward the end of the workout and having to reduce our intensity and our calorie burn. So uh, carbohydrate consumption during exercise is good for that. And it's also good because it takes the edge off our hunger afterwards. And we're less likely to rip the door off our refrigerator because we're so famished after workout, we can't wait to, to eat and, and oftentimes overeat. And we did a study in which uh, uh, we tested people consuming carbohydrate during exercise on one occasion, on another occasion consuming a, a placebo, and then fed them afterwards, just ad libitum. They voluntarily consumed whatever they wanted. And we showed very clearly that their food consumption after they consumed the placebo, in other words, no carbohydrate during exercise, was greater. Uh, they consumed more calories than they did when they had carbohydrate during exercise. Yeah, and, and that's also something that uh, I have experienced and I think most listeners probably have experienced as well. It's, uh, yeah, very, very intuitive. And, uh, and also, as you say, in this, you have studies to support that. So... That about wraps it up for for the questions that I had. Is there anything that we have missed that you want to mention on in and around these topics? Uh, just one thing pops to mind, and that is that um, there's an upper limit to the amount of carbohydrate that our bodies can use to replenish glycogen, and that seems to be that 10 grams per kilogram of body weight per day. Uh, there's no reason for athletes to try to cram in more. Uh, because it's not going to aid in muscle glycogen restoration. Um, the, the other thing I'd like to add is that, you know, I've always thought of coaching as first and foremost an art form uh, that's best it, informed or advised by science. And so I, I commend the approach you're taking because obviously uh, um, it, it's a reflection of, of that philosophy uh, because, you know, when you uh, – Every athlete is different. Every athlete is going to respond differently to diet and nutrition and training. And that's part of the art of coaching, to be able to, to guide athletes in different directions for different reasons at different times. But, you know, using an informed science-based approach to, to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Science forms a fantastic starting point, but then you need to tailor things for each individual athlete. And that becomes a bit more of an art form. 
So let's uh, let's fi- finish up with the rapid fire questions. So take just one sentence to answer these. And the first one is: What's the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning? <laughs> well, after I get my wits about me, uh, for the past six months or so, I've been doing pull-ups uh, because I find that that's a, a good uh, um, sort of upper body workout that challenges a lot of different muscle groups, and it, uh, it is helping my swimming. Uh, so I'm I'm happy about that. Very nice. What's your favorite book, blog, or resource? You know, when I read, it's almost always nonfiction biographies or history types of things. Uh, But nowadays, you know, like a lot of people, I spend uh, more than enough time each day looking at YouTube videos on a whole variety of topics, whether it's swimming technique or a sports science topic. Uh, There's always something there that... uh, uh, do, do you mind it. naming one YouTube channel and one of those uh, nonfiction books that you like? Um, let's see. The you, one of the YouTube channels that that I like is uh, Go Swim. It's a it's a membership type of uh, swimming technique. Yep. Yeah, uh, I'm familiar with that. Yeah. The Race Club is another one that I. I look at and, and enjoy. I'm always, you know, and sometimes I'll just find other videos. Effortless swimming is another one that yep. has some good stuff. So I look around and try to find things that that I think will work for me. And a book. Yeah, as far as books are concerned, um, the current book I'm reading is called uh, Apocalypse Never. It's this particular one happens to do with the controversy over uh, global warming, climate change type stuff. Uh, but one before that that I read was called uh, uh, Top Gun. It's by uh, um, a gentleman who formed the Top Gun program for the U.S. Navy, the, kind of the basis of the Top Gun movie. Mm-hmm. That was super interesting. Yeah. And finally, who's somebody that has inspired you? Well, I, you know, the, it was my father, um, uh, not because he accomplished anything incredible, aside from the fact that uh, he was in Europe in World War II, and then like all the GIs had to come home and you know, scrape together a, a life for himself and his wife and kids in you know uncertain times. And you know, as I look back upon his life and how hard he had to work and all the challenges that he endured. Uh, far more than I've had to in, in my relatively comfy life. Um, you know, I can't help but but admire and be inspired by his uh, his work ethic and his dedication and his moral compass. Excellent. And finally, are there any places where listeners can follow you, whether it's social media or website or uh, anything like that that you want to mention or any projects, anything you're up to? Uh, now is your chance to to plug that. <laughs> well, you, I have a website that's more of a holding page than anything else, just so that potential uh, clients, consulting clients, can can learn a little bit about me. And that's just sportsscienceinsights.com. Um, and you know, there, there's some articles and other little things that I post on there from time to time. I don't have much of a social media presence, um, 
and uh, you know pr- prefer just to work within the, the normal scientific community for uh, these types of things. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, uh, Bob. Uh, and uh, yeah, I hope you have a great rest of your day and enjoy the weeding. Well, thank you very much. And, and the same to you. I, I certainly enjoyed our conversation and uh, I hope others will too. I hope that you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Murray. As usual, you can find the show notes and links to the paper that uh, we discussed. So Bob's review paper on glycogen metabolism and resynthesis on scientifictriathlon.com. And also you will have links to the interviews mentioned, such as the one with John Hawley and uh, a related one with uh, Louise Burke. On Thursday, we have another Q&A coming out as usual. And then next Monday, uh, I will actually republish an interview that uh, I did. So I was interviewed for the Endurance Innovation Podcast by friends of the show, Michael Lieberson and Andrew Buckroll. And uh, the topic of that interview was uh, devices and technology that are useful for triathletes and those that are not so useful. So it will be an episode on devices, the good and the bad. So my recommendations, essentially. I hope that you will enjoy that one. Stay tuned, stay subscribed, and you will get that on Monday. In the meantime, if you are looking for training plans or coaching services, if you want to take your triathlon performances to the next level, uh, you should check out scientifictriathlon.com. We have all the information there about these products and services, and uh, it's uh, really, really uh, top quality, so you won't be disappointed. You can always uh, email me if you have more questions about that. My email is michael at scientifictraffling.com, and it's michael with a K. Big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Go and take their free online sweat test to get a personalized hydration strategy and get 15% off your order of electrolytes with the promo code DETTRIATHLONSHOW15. And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear and prescription glasses and sunglasses and get 20% off your order with the promo code that you can find on roka.com forward slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving fast.